Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Doug Simon, who is CEO of DS Simon Media. Today we will discuss the Media Influencers Report. Doug is also the founder of DS Simon, which is now DS Simon Media. His firm pioneered Internet media tours, and its unique approach to guiding clients, PR kidding, was awarded a trademark by the U.S. Patent Office. He's provided strategic counsel and executed campaigns for Pfizer, Fidelity, Lincoln Financial, Macy's, Hood, the Consumer Electronics Association, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the American College of Physicians, among others. Doug, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Elena. Absolutely. Did I say that right? Is it PR-kidding? It is PR-kidding. And, you know, what we found, and this sort of came up out of the whole economic downturn in 2008 and 2009, is that, you know, people wanted to make sure their PR campaigns provided value and perhaps moved the needle in a positive way for their organization. So we came up with it as an approach to really assess that before you started a campaign. And I can go through what that involves if you would like. If you would tell us quickly a little bit about what that is, I'm guessing other folks are also curious. Sure. It's just a five-step process where first you analyze what's the behavior you're trying to change. And every communications plan that we've been involved with, it's about trying to get people to do something differently if they hadn't had a chance to absorb your content. So First is, what's the behavior change? Who are these people? What's the content that you can get in front of them? Where do they consume content? And then can you assess if that process is effective? What is the behavior? Who is the audience? What is the content? Where do they consume it? And what was the last one? Um, the last one is assessing. And, of course, you want to have a strategy to getting that content in front of them. Excellent. Thank you. Sure. When we talk about the Media Influencers Report, we are talking, of course, about the latest report because this is a report that your company has been producing for a number of years, right? Yes. It goes back about 10, 12 years when it used to be about specifically TV news. Of, co of course, the definition of media has expanded tremendously to cover all of the different platforms of communication which is a perfect segue to who are the people that you survey in order to put this report together. Would you tell us about that? Sure. We surveyed reporters and producers at television stations who are involved in the content that goes on their websites, and similar for radio stations, newspapers, magazines, and then, of course, pure play website producers and bloggers. Like a WebMD would be an example of a website producer. And how did you select who to survey? Um, we sent out a general email and used SurveyMonkey to tabulate the results, and we repeated it on multiple occasions to get a significant number of respondents. I believe it was more than 300 respondents that we were able to get. Now, in order to get 300 respondents among, from among media people, I'm thinking you had to send a lot of invitations. What are we talking, like 3,000? Yeah, I would say that's a similar ratio. We started probably with about 2,500, but, you know, resent it a couple of times to each. Obviously, for those that answered, we hadn't sent it again. So there is some self-selection 
in the results. Did you include diverse media in that initial invitation? In other words, from diverse markets and diverse... We did include media from diverse markets and diverse cultures. However, given the number of respondents, we didn't get enough to break it down to say this specific ethnic group believes this and others don't. Was if it, that makes sense. So they're part of the overall numbers, but not necessarily broken out just because it wouldn't have been statistically significant. So um, am I under- correct in understanding that it was particularly challenging to get media, diverse media representatives or representatives from diverse media outlets to participate? Um, that wouldn't be correct. What it is is we didn't design the survey to say, okay, we're doing a survey of Hispanic media where we would have built a broad list and we might have had to go back to that same group 10 to 15 times. So I think you raise a good point, and it's probably a logical extension for next year's report to try and break it down to those different audiences and make that effort. Because, you know, one of the things we're finding both in our client work and just from observation is the Hispanic market is increasingly growing more important. In fact, since the year 2000, 10 new Spanish language television networks have started in the United States. That's incredible. What about different ethnicities among the mainstream media outlets? Is there a representation there, or could you tell... Um, it was difficult to tell. You could make some top-line assessment based on surname, but this report was not broken down specifically under those, and I don't want to oversell that part of it. What it does do is give really a broad range of the media as a whole in different groups, um, what their openness is to using outside content, how they're using video what the concerns are over the issue of trust of PR people, which were alarmingly high, and there were some easy solutions for communicators that could actually improve their ability to get content placed. Also, what we're seeing anecdotally is the Hispanic market, when it comes to broadcast, um, they're very open to receiving two types of material. One is if it is content that really informs and helps out specific viewers. An example, we just did a segment for the Insurance Information Institute, and it was on preparing for a disaster such as a hurricane or major storm. And this got tremendous play. In fact, it was included in markets New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. Major markets were interested in interviewing their spokesperson to get the story and how their viewers could be prepared. We recently did a segment for Macy's at their Macy's Front Row Fashion event at the end of Fashion Week, and there it was more of a celebrity angle where Talia, her clothing line, she was walking the red carpet, and they were very interested in both sending crews and receiving content to cover. So those two areas of coverage are great opportunities for communicators trying to reach the Hispanic market. Let's go back to basics, if you'll bear with me, and discuss the definition of media influencers. What is your starting point when you think of media influencers, either in relation to the survey or just in general? How would you define that? Who is a media influencer? 
Um, so many people are media influencers now, and it used to be just it was the network um, news anchors, Jorge Ramos, for example, obviously at the start of the 2016 presidential campaign in his little fight with Donald Trump, um, was in the news quite a bit for taking the stand. And, you know, there was a wonder of when this great anchor spoke, how come the whole Hispanic viewership didn't follow in their condemnation of Mr. Trump? There's a lot of curiosity that it didn't affect him negatively more than it did, at least at the start of the campaign. But that's also down if you're trying to reach, you know, someone through mommy bloggers, someone who has started a blog that is influential. I mean, clearly you're an influencer within your network there. And if someone is trying to reach that community, you're a very important person to be in touch with. So I thank you for that. When Do you want you- a better definition that's a little more clear as opposed to examples? Because what I can tell you is an influencer is someone who has people that pay attention to what they're saying, writing, or putting out there that are within a specific group that folks are trying to reach. In other words, it could be someone from what we have traditionally defined as a media channel, but it could also be someone, as you were saying earlier, from a website, or it could be someone who is blogging their political views or their personal views. Am I understanding correctly? Definitely, and if you live in a community and go to, say, a neighborhood block party, your neighbors are very influential within that group. What are the borders of that definition, if you will? Where have you stepped off the border that you wouldn't consider someone an influencer? Is someone, for example, who has a very broad following on Pinterest or on Instagram or on Vine, are they media influencers if they're actually not producing any text content or video or audio content? Where are the boundaries? Sure. Well, the boundaries certainly aren't limited to there because even while they might not be producing content, they're curating content. They're selecting content that they find worthwhile. So, again, if they can get a sufficient audience who is interested in what they're curating, they become an influencer if that is the marketplace you are trying to reach. And that's one of the huge changes in media. It used to be craft a message to go after this broad group and hope that within the group there were some people that were relevant to your cause. Now marketers have the opportunity to target so specifically to get the result that they want. For instance, and we can use online as an example, let's say someone has politics that they're more on the liberal side, you might think, great, I should advertise on Huffington Post. And that's not illogical. But where it's taken it to the next step is you can identify specific articles that relate to the content you're trying to promote and then place your content next to those specific articles. So if you were to pet food, for example, you could go on a general site where you know some of the people there are going to love pets, or you could say, here's an article about pets that we think is interesting. Someone who's reading that article is way more likely to be interested in pet food. So it's that type of targeting and selection, and that can be done across demographics, ethnicities, et cetera. It's a very powerful tool. 
That definitely extends to all these media outlets that we've described. Would it be fair to say that it also extends to things like Facebook and Twitter? Um, absolutely, and that's you know how Facebook is trying to grow and prosper um, by creating these communities that advertisers can target so specifically based on their interest. And LinkedIn is another example for people who are B2B. You can target people within a specific market or have specific job titles or work in certain types of industries and point your content right at them. Is there a, a way to separate or categorize all of these different influencers because it seems rather challenging for a company to come in and say media influencers and they're, it's such a broad definition now. How do you approach that? I think you have to approach it walking back to the idea of what your organization, what your brand, what your association is trying to accomplish or what your agency is trying to accomplish for your client. The influencers have to be defined based on your specific need. And that's a step that's often skipped. And that's a big mistake to skip that because that's the first part to identify who are the people we can reach. Once you know the behavior you're trying to change and who that audience is, who are the influencers to that specific audience rather than who are the general influencers. Are we talking about advertising? Are we talking about editorial outreach? Are we talking about marketing overall? What specifically are we referring to? Sure, there is a mix, but the unifying piece in all of this is the power of video. One of the things that we found in our media influencers report that was interesting is more than 76% of those surveyed will use video produced by a third party. What that means is they're willing to link to or post your entire message unedited. So that's a significant opportunity for marketers to get that content out, to share it. Obviously, the video can be shared through Instagram, Facebook, multiple channels, but that's a key element that we're finding, whether it's public relations now whether it's marketing, whether it's advertising, it's frequently about video content that you're distributing to this enormous demand for video that's out there. This video, though, we're, we're not talking necessarily about your garden variety television commercial. I'm assuming that there's more of an editorial or an advertorial bent to it as opposed to just straight ads. Is that well, right? Yeah, for video that's designed to earn media, there definitely has to be a journalistic take. And this gets back to what we were talking about, where the audience wants to either be informed or entertained. So you have to have content that's informing and providing a service and a service that's critical at the time of need. For instance, and I would go against the norm in this a few years ago when people would ask me, how long should a video be? And instead of saying, oh, it's got to be as short as possible, and definitely you want to make it short, content, rich. But, for example, if you're doing a medical video on a specific condition that affects children, most likely people either have 
near zero interest in that, or if their child or a family member has a child with that condition, suddenly their interest is insatiable. They want as much content as possible. So you really have to work specifically based on your story, based on what you're trying to accomplish, based on who you're trying to reach. You were talking earlier about how it was efficient to seek channels that were specific to the interests of the marketer, that that was a step that you didn't want to skip. How granular are companies getting in terms of channels? Because it used to be that it was a few big players and that's where all the advertising revenue was going and maybe a trickle of the editorial and public relations efforts. Where is this standing now? Well, I think the more granular you can be, the more effective, and that's led to such a rapid growth in the digital advertising space because, as I mentioned before, you can literally hone in and say, oh, I want to reach attorneys in New York and select them and send your content to them. So the more granular you can get, the better. The good news is this process is really self-selecting. As an inexpensive tool, I call it reverse Googling. You can Google the subject matter that you're trying to pitch and you're trying to get out there and quickly identify who has written about it, who has covered it, who has reported on similar stories, and help build them as your media list. Of course, there are other analytics tools. We work with TalkWalker on that so that we can generate those reports of where, say, a company's been mentioned or a subject matter has been mentioned, and then target media reporters, bloggers, to deliver our related content with knowledge that they're interested in covering that type of story, which is a huge advantage. If I'm understanding correctly, that is mostly a public relations effort in terms of reaching out to the media, because when I think of the smaller channels, most of the advertising, as far as I know, and this is not my area of expertise, so please chime in if you know, but my understanding is that most of the smaller channels have few options for ads. They have to rely on the big players, such as Google, for their ads or yeah. other aggregators. So they, do, they do, but they can still be pitched as media, if you will, to try and earn placement of content if your content is appropriate for them. Another popular tool is what we call a video press junket, and that can be done for any of the marketers who are listening who go to trade shows or other types of events. Typically, trade media will be there. A great tool, especially if you're a senior level person at a smaller business, maybe, you know, the under 50 million in gross revenue or under, you know, 5 to 10 million space. It's an opportunity to get your thought leader out having video conversations with members of the trade press, with other leaders who perhaps run organizations that you're trying to do business with. These are great opportunities to increase coverage in the media, get more of your content distributed. And then we get to one important point and there's been much talk in the industry and PR and communications about, you know, earned versus paid, should paid be first. What we found is that if you can first generate earned media, you can then use the tools of paid media 
to get wide distribution for more credible content. And I will give you an example. The project that I referenced with the Insurance Information Institute had a digital campaign as part of it, and video content was created with their spokespeople speaking about different issues, and it was solid stuff that was good. But when we put this content out to be next to articles, we tested what was better, the earned media place that we had on NBC New York's website about this story, or video content of a spokesperson from the Insurance Information Institute. It turned out, not surprisingly, that the earned media placement generated much more response, much more quickly online when pushed out as digital advertising. More people wanted to go see that link than a link of something that was produced within the company. So for the smart marketers like those who listen to your show, the idea that you can get earned and then increase its value by promoting it through advertising, through your social channels as well, that has tremendous value. Were there differences when you looked at the influencers as to where they were, meaning print or broadcast or online? Um, there were some differences. Um, not surprise. One of the areas that we covered was if they use social networking sites to find leads on the brands that they cover. Um, television, radio, newspapers, and website producers and bloggers were all over 80%. Magazines were much less likely to use the social networking sites to get the story ideas. Now, what that means is the content you're putting on your social networking sites, including video, shouldn't be marketing fluff, if you will, but needs to be presented with a journalistic, earned media voice. That's not only true to get the media to see it and decide to do a story, that's true to get people to sit through your content. Again, people have so many choices of what content they want to listen to, watch, read, absorb, that you've got to win them over. And is that what you're referring to when you talk about earned Tell yeah. us a little bit about earned versus paid, Doug. Sure. Um, earned media is something that would be traditionally pitched as a news story that the person who covers it would cover it because it's interesting for their outlet, and you would not have to make a payment for that content to be placed, aired, or shown. And we've seen, you know, news stories. You can watch the Today Show or other news programs. You'll see those stories that they get placed that are interested in covering. Paid is you have content already that you're looking to distribute, and you identify the correct outlets for that that reach your market that will be effective in changing behavior and pay a fee to get your content placed out there. You talked earlier about trust being an issue. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. Sure. Um, there are actually very specific rules for um, spokesperson identification um, from the um, F. I believe this is from the FCC's rules on spokesperson identification, and they require if someone is, say, a third-party spokesperson, if they're being interviewed, they're required during that interview to identify that they have a working relationship with the sponsor. They just didn't happen to walk up and start talking about an organization. They received compensation to do so. Um, what we found 
and this was actually a positive development, is that 69% of these influencers, and it worked across all of the channels, TV, radio, all of them was a majority, um, felt that if they received proper disclosure, they would be more likely to consider using outside produced video. Um, the disappointing piece was only, was 90% of them said that they had been misled by PR people. And that can be looked at negatively about communicators. It can also be looked at positively because if you can build a relationship of trust by being straightforward and honest with the journalists you work with, you have a much better chance of getting your content shared and used and getting more favorable coverage. And when you say misled, was it specifically in relation to disclosing a spokesperson's relationship to the company, or was it a more general? It was more general. We asked them, how often are you misled by PR pros? 25% felt either always or often. 68% said sometimes, and only 10% had never. That's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. But like I say, that's a great opportunity if you go about doing things the right way. Because if they trust you and the facts back that up, that if they, if you disclose properly, they're more willing to cover the story. So I think this is a great opportunity for the folks, you know, that listen to your podcast to improve results. Be candid and you're much more likely to get a warm reception. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. And it makes sense. Remember, the whole media environment has changed so dramatically over the last five years, ten years before that, where now there's so many more different outlets and it's a lot harder to keep secrets because there are so many people sharing information. So by being honest and upfront in the first place, you're going to be more authentic, enhance your credibility and become a trusted resource. And again and again, we see that getting what we call earned media is more valuable than the paid and is an opportunity to then make your paid media content about what you're generating in a journalistic style that consumers and your target market people want to consume. You mentioned earlier that videos were highly desirable. Is that because they're so expensive to produce? Um, well, I think they're highly desirable to consume. It's just what people are watching. And we don't have to get into a discussion about education, per se, but lots of people would rather watch a video than read a book, read a newspaper. So much is going digital. So you need to communicate the way your audience is receiving that content. How? So video, overwhelmingly, you know, there are millions of videos being watched by tens of millions of videos being consumed online just during the course of our conversation. And for people who, you know, come back and listen to it in late 2016 or early 2017, obviously we're in later 2015, by then it'll probably be 10 times the number of videos that are being consumed. It's how people want to communicate, so you need to stand out from the crowd with content that has positive information for your target audience. We have video space on our website, and I find that is actually one of the hardest tools 
to secure. In terms of, of creating the content? Well, no. Obviously, there are, there are times when I am not in a position to create video content. The event or the topic that we are discussing is in another venue. I don't have the wherewithal. I'm not one of the major media outlets. I don't have video production teams. So I have to rely on someone to provide the video. If it's right. a movie producer, then they have to provide a clip. If it's an ad, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I find very challenging is securing copyright-free video for editorial use. In other words, to include within an article about the topic, nine times out of ten, if not higher, they're interested in getting the exposure, but they're unwilling to provide the video. What they want to provide is a link to another website where the video is located. Would you tell us about the availability of video and in what forms it's available, etc.? Sure. From a rights perspective, it's best to produce it yourself. You want to get people to sign release forms that they've agreed to participate in that content and share how you plan to use that content. That's going to prevent you from even if it's a low likelihood of future litigation. And that would apply even if you're doing a video for your organization with your employees who might be covered. But what happens if they leave the organization? Are they still covered? So it's a good thing to put something in your company guidelines that says that they may be included in video. If so, they provide you with the rights to use it, even if they terminate leave under any circumstances. That's a good thing to add to company guidelines. I mean, it is typically you have to pay for video online. There are organizations, film houses you can search and find, or you can link to, which is not a bad thing. I know you might want people to stay on your site, but if there is a relevant video that you want to link to, one, you might ask them, can you take a clip of it and then point them to a larger piece? That might be an option that they might be more comfortable providing you with a portion of the video rather than the whole thing. So that way it serves your interest but can still drive people back, you know, to their site. So it becomes a win-win. So that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is we can record video a lot of different ways now. The phone is changing some of the dynamics. Now it has to be the right look and fit that's appropriate for your brand But, you know, there are ways if you're behind the scenes, backstage, you can get a quote from someone at a trade show. The big issue is making sure you're in a quiet enough area that the audio quality will be good. Because many of these um, video uses your phones can get fantastic video quality. What's difficult is if you're in a loud area to get um, broadcast quality sound that can be used effectively. So don't overlook the audio if you're trying to create video yourself. How easy is it, in your experience, to obtain copyright-free video for editorial use? Um, In our experience, it has not been hugely easy to do that. Um, Based on, you know, our work involves working with brands, working with nonprofits to promote and deliver a message. So, you know, anyone we're trying to get footage in understands that we're being paid a fee to do work. And, you know, to give you an illustration of how things have changed, 
Um, back in the 90s, we did a project with an insurance company related to their policies on the Family and Medical Leave Act. I was able to get a camera person we worked with in D.C. to get White House credentials to cover the announcement in the Rose Garden. We used that footage in our video for an insurance company. Good luck trying to do the same thing today. We would also approach, you know, numerous celebrities to get them to participate in content. We did a piece about um, the Vancouver Expo that was opening in Canada and interviewed Wayne Gretzky for it, the hockey player who's, you know, since retired, but, you know, very famous person with no money changing hands. You know, that world has changed quite a bit where, you know, if you're working with outside entities, they usually want something in compensation. The way to change that is if you're providing value by incorporating them into the content you're creating. And that was the video press junket example at a trade show, where in that context, if you're the one providing the crew, you'll be shocked at how open people are to participating in your content and getting you what you need. And it can actually be pretty affordable if you're efficient and do it with one day of shooting and editing on site to get the content posted. And it can really drive both engagement and enhance the thought leadership position of your leaders and build great contacts with prospects and media that you're trying to work with. Would it be accurate to say that 1% of outreach is accompanied by video files, not necessarily links to other websites, but actual video files? Do you think that number is accurate? 1% of media would, outreach. I would hope that number is low. I mean, obviously, that's a core part of our business, so it's included in everything that we do. But all of these outlets are using video. It's ubiquitous. So why would someone not include video if they're trying to convey a message? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think it needs to be an increased priority for organizations that aren't doing it, because what they're saying is, okay, we're going to take this huge segment of the audience that consumes video content online and disregard their needs. That's not a prescription for success. Let's talk a little bit more about the report and your findings. Sure. You have, I'm looking here at the responses from the different types of media outlets, television, radio, newspapers, magazines, website producers, and bloggers. Would you tell us about those percentages? Because some of them vary quite a lot. Um, they do. And, you know, one example, let's see, we can go to um, the groups that are using social, well, we talked about the social networking. Maybe we can talk about um, which social networks some of these media are relying on. Um, overall, Twitter was the most relied upon for story leads. Um, newspapers, 75% of journalists were going there. Um, TV was 88, magazines 85. So newspapers were a little less on Twitter and actually more reliant on Facebook. That, that would be one change. LinkedIn magazines and websites were the highest total of pursuing LinkedIn. One of the interesting things is um, 38% of the media were researching YouTube 
for leads with the top were television and radio. And again, they could play YouTube video. Radio could play the audio from YouTube. Um, Pinterest came in at 22%. Um, bloggers were way ahead of the curve at 83%, where, you know, TV stations are down at 4%, newspapers 22%. Instagram was ahead of Pinterest at 36%. Again, bloggers were leading the way. Television more open to Instagram than Pinterest, 56%. There's a logic to that. Instagram has video. What about age? Do we see a difference in terms of the consumption of news and the consumption of media by age group and therefore by channel? Did you find anything on that? Yeah, there are definitely differences in age, but if we take the time where we didn't think, you know, people say over 50 were using digital or looking at video content online, that's a mistake. It's overwhelming. In fact, Facebook users are starting to skew older where, you know, kids don't want to be on stuff their parents are on. It's just, it's just not cool to do that. So that's evolving and changing. Obviously, if you're looking at an AARP type of audience, Snapchat is not your likely vehicle that you want to use, but, you know, companies that target, you know, millennials, teens, you know, will use Snapchat to build relationships. Gender, are there particular spaces that are dominated by one gender or another? Again, I think some of those gender changes specifically with, you know, use of video online have, you know, gone away. It's more the general tendency of the type of subject matter people are interested works across platforms. You know, so it's not, say, someone is interested on, they're watching TV about certain types of programming. That person will be looking for similar type of programming online. Are they more likely to be, for example, on television versus a magazine if they are men or women, or is it just always specific to the topic? Yeah, television tends to skew older. If you're looking at TV news, one of the biggest demographics there is the 50 Plus, but what's interesting in the past year, and this isn't data from our report, um, news viewership on television has increased, and it's increased among all age groups. And there's no gender difference? I don't have that specific answer. I don't want to speculate on that without knowing. Fair enough. Specifically. What about ethnicity? I know you said you didn't, you didn't focus uh, your efforts on being very granular in that respect, but do you And have Elena, I think we will next year after this conversation, and that next year would be 2016. Are there any insights that over the 14 years that you've been doing the report you have gained in terms of the different market segments? It doesn't have to be ethnicity, but of course we have a number of market segments across the country. Yeah. One of the things that I would say as a positive thing is, we have found, and this is anecdotal, the Hispanic media, especially on the broadcast side, to be less jaded than, um, I don't know if you want to call it, you know, the non-Hispanic, non-ethnic media, I guess would be a legitimate way to describe them, who have become more jaded about, you know, working with outside content. Often they're trying to monetize 
placement of content on talk shows that they do where people can buy to be part of the show as opposed to have content aired during commercial times. I think, you know, what we've seen is the Hispanic media is more open to if this is a good story, they're more open to using it versus, wait a second, is that person, do they once do a show on another network? I don't want them on my network. And those types of things that you'll get from the non-ethnic media. Is this a language agnostic data set? In other words, does it go across Hispanic media that are English and Spanish? It, it did include both Spanish-speaking Hispanic media and English-speaking Hispanic media, though the report, the questionnaire, was in very straightforward English language on that. So that could have introduced a bias, perhaps lowering the total respondents from Spanish-speaking Hispanic media. And I think it's a good point that you point out the difference, that if you're looking at a, quote, Spanish-language campaign, you really want to look at markets that are much higher on the list of, are they the largest Hispanic market versus general market, with San Antonio would be an example, um, much smaller market in terms of entire population compared to other cities in the U.S. than they are as a Hispanic market. And a great thing that your listeners can Google is Nielsen um, DMA, which is designated market area, DMA rank Hispanic markets. And that will tell them what the list are from one to over 200 in Hispanic population in those markets. And again, it becomes self-selecting. Those markets are obviously going to be more interested in that type of content than a market that is one of the smallest in the country and is the fewest number of Hispanic people. And in, under these circumstances, how are you defining Hispanic, Doug? Um, I guess I would define, I would let the media self-define that and probably would want to refer back to the terms that Nielsen Media does. I don't know if they measure it on, you know, number of grandparents or having at least one parent or self-reported on that, but this would be what Nielsen, how they designate it. Let's talk about geography. Is there any information in your report that looks at where media are located? You were just talking about specific DMAs. In other words, a New York market versus a Los Angeles versus a Texas market versus the Midwest. Is there any data from your report, and did you see differences or commonalities? Um, we weren't able to discern differences, but I think overall what we've seen in the years that we've been doing this report is that you know the major media used to be concentrated in New York, in Washington, D.C., in Los Angeles. Um, the power of local news has grown. So, you know, the different 210 media markets, there's a higher concentration. When we talk about the influencers in the digital space, it doesn't necessarily even matter where they live unless it's about a blog about great places to eat in a specific town. It's really a function that these outlets can now have global reach no matter where they are located. So I think that is also changing how you need to communicate, you need to be aware. And again, that ties back to, you know, what's the brand, what's the behavior you're trying to change, who are you trying to reach, obviously where are they, 
can also be geographic versus what media they're, they're likely to watch. Are they online? Are they watching TV news? Are they reading newspapers? Doing more than one of the above. So I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the media and the influencers now bring a sensibility of many more cultures than they did. And that's fed by the growth in the number of Hispanic networks from, you know, 10 new networks starting since the year 2000 is quite a bit. Um, so that evidence is there that there's much more diversity in the media people are able to consume if they seek it out. The Pew Center recently released some projections that estimate, I think it's in 50 years, the largest ethnic minority, I think would be the proper terminology, in the United States will actually be Asians. Are you seeing any evidence of that? Um, I think I'm old enough that it probably won't be relevant to me in 50 years, but there is starting to be an increased awareness of marketing to that sector. And, you know, if people are listening who have children of college age, if they get familiarity and awareness with the Asian market, that's going to probably be a very, very good thing for their careers. I don't know if I was specific enough, but Asian Americans. So, in other words, I'm not talking about the Asian countries, oh, but Asian Americans as opposed to Hispanic Americans being the largest minority. What these projections indicated is that in 50 years, I believe that was the number, the Asian American market segment of the United States was going to take over as the largest minority. I see. Well, you know, what we've seen is the Asian broadcast market has been slower to coalesce than, say, what happened with the Hispanic market. But, you know, if that data is there, I mean, you would have to think people are going to respond and do that. And that's also a question of, you know, what are their language skills? How assimilated have they been become? You know, does pr program target them? I, you know, I guess I don't want to speak out of turn just from an observational um, perspective, but, you know, that market is often drives as a very driven market to succeed at, at different levels. So I don't know if that's changing the dynamic, but it is an interesting piece where it's growing to that level, yet we haven't seen, for instance, just like there are so many Spanish language networks and non-Spanish Hispanic programming, doesn't seem there's been the same correlation in you know, with the Asian Americans serving that market as a homogenous market. Recently, the search engines, and I don't know if this is specific to Google or only to Google or if all of the search engines have made this requirement, have imposed mobile-enabled website requirements in order to appear in the search engine results. In other words, if your website is not enabled for display on a mobile device, some of the search engines have said they will no longer place your website among the results, the organic results. There's, of course, been a scramble for a lot of websites to meet those requirements. Did you see any of that reflected in your survey? Do you have any thoughts on this? 
Well, I think there's data out there from Pew, and I should add, I probably have another two or three minutes for this conversation, which has been really fantastic. Elena, thank you so much for your questions and, you know, giving me this opportunity to speak with you about these important issues. You know, what the data is showing is way more people are consuming content, consuming video on mobile devices. So as a communicator, if you're not set for that, you're giving a less than desirable experience to the significant group, which, you know, why would you want to cut out your audience? Because that's where the people are. So it's important that you're able to communicate effectively with them. How do you see or do you see this relating, for example, to the desire for video content that you were referring to from the report earlier? Well, you know, one of the things is that, you know, video content can be shared through mobile devices. Typically, when we're sending it out on behalf of a client, you would want someone who's an influencer to take a look at the video and easily embed it from their phone, easily embed it from their, you know, iPad, if that's how they communicate, not have to be back at their laptop or desktop to work with you. So you have to be flexible in providing the right content. What suggestions would you share, Doug, with our listeners, communicators and marketers, companies wanting to reach out to these different markets in terms of the information that you have gathered in the report? What tips, let's say three, would you share for them to be more effective? I I think the tips that I would share is obviously one is, you know, make sure they're creating video content. Two is make sure it doesn't have a sales or marketing voice, but has a more journalistic tone. And three, put an effort out to understand the media marketplace so the content you're distributing is much more targeted to specific outlets and, again, cross-platform that you know based on their past behavior are interested in the subject matter. Thank you, Doug, for joining us from New York City. Thank you so much, Elaine. It's been a pleasure to be part of the conversation. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Doug Simon, who is CEO of DS Simon Media, who discussed his company's Media Influencers Report. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicnpr.com. That's editor at hispanicnpr.com.